what can you learn from a short, one-chapter book among the minor prophets? As you start thinking about this group of people, I want to return your focus to what Brother Marty read to us just a moment or two ago. As you look at that passage, Solomon tells us that what has been in the past is what will be in the future. And what exists now in our present will also what will be in the future as well. We tend to think in the world in which you and I live that we live in a unique time facing unique circumstances. I will tell you that sometimes circumstances change. Sometimes the personalities change. But the basic attitudes and actions and reactions have been the same throughout all the history of man. In fact, you can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and you can come down to our present time and men still struggle with the same kinds of problems. We struggle with having the right attitude toward one another, particularly those of our family. We struggle with the resisting of temptation. And I would suggest to you that as you and I approach the Bible, we can find within it some very important lessons. About two years ago, we began a periodic study of some of the minor prophets. We've already looked at some of them like Hosea. We've looked at uh, Jonah. We've looked at Haggai. We've looked at Malachi. And I want to this morning take just a little bit of time for us to look at the prophet Obadiah and realize that the prophets called people back to righteousness to say this is God's standard. This is the way you ought to live. And also to announce judgment to those who decide that they want to go in a different direction. Obadiah is a very short book, only 21 verses. In fact, the shortest book in the Old Testament. And yet within it are some of the most powerful lessons. I was going to emphasize that you don't have to say a whole lot to say a whole lot. But I was afraid my lesson might go long, so I'm going to skip that part. Uh, but uh, let's look at three things. And the first two are going to be a foundation. We're going to look, first of all, at history. We're going to look at the history behind the book of Obadiah, which is extremely important. We're going to look at hatred and see how hatred plays into the background of this book. And then finally, we're going to focus on about three different sections in the book of Obadiah. And we're going to look at some hard lessons that Edom had to learn and we also need to learn. Let's begin, first of all, with history. The book of Obadiah is about two families. It's about the descendants of Jacob, Israel, and the descendants of Esau, Edom, and when you begin to look at that, you really have to go back to the book of Genesis to chapter 25. And if you will, let's go ahead and turn there in our Bibles to Genesis 25. And I want you to notice the background of what was stated to Isaac and Rebekah. Genesis chapter 25, beginning with verse 21. 
Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled within her. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went in to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. And the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. Afterward his brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So they called his name Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Now I want you to observe just very simply here that there were two nations within the womb of Rebekah. God knew, and here as we talked about last Sunday, was prophetic prophecy or predictive prophecy talking about the two nations that are going to develop. And they did. There's also the statement of the struggle that was going to exist between these. There was the statement that the older would serve the younger. Now, if you continue on, we pick up with verse 27. We're going to understand the concept of the birthright and how this will play into the book of Obadiah. So the boys grew, and Esau became or was a skillful hunter. A man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Now Jacob cooked a stew and Esau came in from the field and when he was weary and Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew for I am weary. Therefore, His name is called Edom. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I am about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau the bread and the stew of lentils, and he ate and he drank, and he arose and went his way. Listen very carefully to the last sentence. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now you have to recognize that what is going on is there are some favoritisms going on with the parents. Isaac loved Esau because he was a rugged man, because he went out and he killed game. He brought that game in to eat. At the same time, Rebekah loved Jacob because he evidently spent more time in the tents with her. But you see the kind of struggle that developed because Esau was the oldest 
And Jacob wanted the birthright. Now, the birthright was important. It was important financially because that oldest child got a double portion. But it was also important socially because the one who possessed the birthright became the leader of the family, became the patriarch. Esau did not respect the value of what he had. Now, if you go over to Genesis 27, I cannot spend the time reading this portion of Scripture. It's too long. But I will summarize for you what happened. When you get there, you have to fast forward to the time now Isaac is an old man. And it's time for him to confer a blessing upon his children. And Isaac wanted to make a ceremonial type event out of it. He wanted Esau to go out and to kill him some game and bring it in and cook it for him. Rebecca overheard the conversation. She told Jacob to go and to get skins and put it on his arm so he'd appear hairy and to be able to cook a stew so that his father would think that he is Esau. And he did deceive his father. And he received Esau's blessing. Now, with that came some real friction in the family. Because if you'll notice with me, verses 41 through 46, the result of Jacob getting the blessing. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The morning or days of mourning for my father are at hand, then I will kill my brother Jacob. And the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now folks, pause with me for just a moment. He comforts himself. He's able to satisfy himself saying, When my parents are gone, Jacob's a dead man. And because of that, Rebekah sends Jacob away. Now, history goes on to record that Esau and his family settled in the area of Mount Seir. That is that area that is east of the Jordan River, east of the Dead Sea, and it is south of the Dead Sea. In fact, it's the area today in Jordan where Petra is at. And we read in Genesis 32 and verse 8 or verse 3, then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau and his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. In Genesis 36:8, Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. So we know the place, we know the people. But you may not realize that this kind of animosity continued to go on after the death of Jacob and Esau. Jacob's descendants, the Israelites, found themselves facing the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. And when the children of Israel had left Egypt, they were going through the wilderness wandering and they were coming up on the east side of the Dead Sea. They were going to pass through the territory, the area of the Edomites. And I want you to listen how Numbers chapter 20, 
refers to the attitude of the Edomites as the Israelites approach. Now Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, you know the hardship that has befallen us. Brothers, we're your brothers. You know what kind of difficulty we've gone through. Look at verse 18. Then Edom said to him, you shall not pass through my land lest I come out against you with the sword. You're not coming through. Drop down to verse 20. Then he said, You shall not pass through. So Edom came out against them with many men and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. There's no love lost between the descendants. But you see, as you go on and read, you will find out that God would not allow Israel to do anything with nor meddle with Edom because God had given that territory to Esau. Stated very simply in Deuteronomy 2, 4 through 6, You are about to pass through the territory of your brethren, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully. Do not meddle with them, for I will not give you any of their land, no, not as much as one footstep, because I have given Mount Seir Esau as a possession. He goes on in verse 6, said, you can buy food from them, you can buy what you need, but you can't have any of their land. Now what that does, that brings you to the time of the book of Obadiah. And when you're brought forward, you have to realize that what has happened is there's a hatred that has developed over the years, over the generations, between the Israelites and the Edomites, particularly on the side of Edom. When you go to Ezekiel chapter 35, Ezekiel is going to look at them and give a prophecy against them, and here's what he's going to say. Thus says the Lord, verse 3, Behold, O Mount Seir, I am against you. I will stretch out my hand against you and make you desolate. I will lay your cities waste and make you shall be desolate. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Because you have had an ancient hatred and have shed the blood of the children of Israel by the power of the sword in the time of their calamity, when their iniquity came to an end, you see, there's that perpetual hatred that has been nursed over the years toward them. But it wasn't just Ezekiel. The psalmist in Psalm 137 and verse 7, Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raz it, raz it, to its very foundation. You see, they stood on the side and they said, Go ahead and level the city. Burn it down. Because they had such a hatred. And then the book of Amos. In Amos chapter 1 and verse 11. Stated very simply. For three transgressions of Edom and for four. I will not turn away its punishment. Because he pursued his brother with the sword. And cast off pity. His anger tore perpetually. And he kept his wrath forever. 
You see, what I've tried to do in just these few minutes is paint a picture for you, the background of the book of Obadiah. How that there is this anger, there's hatred, and you see, hatred then develops into action. That's the reason why in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You know that people who hate do things that are bad, which leads us to the hard lessons. And let's go to the book of Obadiah. You need to take your Bibles out. You need to turn to Obadiah now as we look, and we're going to observe at least three lessons that they needed to have learned. The first one is the problem of pride. Verse 3 and 4. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the clefts of the rocks, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. You see, when you read that, there's some details to notice. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, you go and visit the city of Petra today. One of the things you will observe is scattered throughout all of those mountaintops are houses where people lived. And the Edomites used that to their advantage. They believed themselves to be unconquerable because... They possessed the high ground. In fact, they lived in places very hard to get to. In fact, if you visit Petra today, you're going to go in through a little narrow passageway. And the Edomites and then later the Idumeans, whenever their enemies would approach, would force them to go through that narrow area. And as they passed through, they'd drop huge rocks on their heads. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 16 and 18, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12 says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. It's easy for people to become arrogant and to believe that they cannot fall. That was a problem for the Edomites. It's a problem for us as well. I want you to see that this did take place. In the book of Second Chronicles, chapter 25, we read about the reign of Amaziah. We learn in verse 11 of chapter 25, he strengthened himself, and leading his people, he went to the valley of Salt, that's the Dead Sea, and killed 10,000 people of Seir. Look at verse 12. Also the children of Judah took captive 10,000 alive, brought them to the top of the rock and cast them down on the top of the rock or from the top of the rock so that they were dashed in pieces. I can visualize that. Those huge cliffs that fall off, Amaziah took them and just one by one, 10,000 of them pushed off and as they hit the ground, they were dashed in pieces. You don't take pride and take confidence in yourself. 
Now, second, and probably the most obvious lesson to be found in the book of Obadiah is found in verses 10 through 14. Read with me there as we read this section. For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Israel in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on the, their substance in the day of their calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. I've entitled this unbrotherly like conduct. You see, the problem is, is they have seen the fall of Jerusalem. That's the Israelites. That's their brethren. And yet, rather than loving, protecting, and providing for their family, no, they walked away. Well, not really walked away. They were indifferent. They didn't come to their aid. They were silent as far as offering help. Brother Winford Claiborne used to preach some lessons. In fact, wrote a couple of books, Silence Can Be Sinful. The idea of saying, okay, they're, they're going to take it all away, but what are you going to do about it? Listen to Ezekiel 22, verse 30. Well, let's back up to Numbers chapter 32 first. While the children of Israel were coming in, the children of Gad and the children of Reuben were wanting to settle on the east side of the Jordan River. And the question came up, shall you sit here while your brethren go to war? Are you going to discourage them? Are you going to let your brothers go and fight the battle and you just sit here? Occasionally we need to ask the question, are we going to allow someone else to fight the battle for the Lord's church? Are we going to join the battle ourselves? Ezekiel 22, verse 30. I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy. But I found none. I didn't find anybody who would stand up and make a stand. No, they're just going to stand by on the other side and watch it happen. Jeremiah 48, verse 10. Cursed is he who does the work of the Lord deceitfully. The American Standard translates that negligently. Cursed is he who keeps back his sword from blood. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, that he who does not who is not with me is against me, and who does not gather with me scatters. Either you are standing with the Lord and you're standing with His people, or you're not. Do we come to the aid of faithful Christians in the time of trial? 
You know, Galatians 6, 2 says, Bear one another's burdens, so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and verse 16, those who deserted him. Sometimes we need to stand up when our elders lead us and say, this is what we're going to do is right. We shouldn't stand by and say, well, let them take the, the hit for it. Let them uh, suffer. Well, no, we stand up and say, I stand with them. Or do we stand up when others bash the church? Do we speak up or do we join in or would he do nothing? There's so much more to that. But let me very quickly take the third found in verse 15. For the day of the Lord is um, upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall be upon your own head. This is exactly what Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. If you and I want to receive good things in return, we ought to sow good things. We ought to treat people like we ourselves would want to be treated. You know, the what we sometimes call the golden text of the Bible or the golden rule, excuse me. That is, whatever we want people to do to us, we ought to do to them. But when you and I have grudges, when we carry with us this unloving, this perpetual hatred of someone, it will come back to us. We're warned in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear a grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice that phrase. Love your neighbor as yourself. Whether it's pride, whether it's indifference, whether it's whatever we're sowing, there's some hard lessons that you and I have to learn in this life. Edom had to learn it the hard way. One of the greatest things about studying the history and studying the Bible is you can recognize the way God handles things and we can avoid them in our lives. God is a God of love and His followers will be likewise. 1 John 4, verses 7 through 11 says, Let us love one another, for love is of God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. You see in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Verses 20 and 21, If one says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this is the command that we have from him. He who loves God must love his brother also. If I walk away from the study of the book of Obadiah, it is, I have to love my brother and seek his best interest, just like God does. And you know what God seeks? 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, God would have all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. If you'll take your Bibles out now, or your song books, excuse me, take your song books out. We're going to sing this invitation song, and the purpose of it is to encourage those who might need to obey the gospel to do so.
If you've not yet become a New Testament Christian, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, willing to repent of all of your sins, confess your faith in Him and be baptized, the Lord will add you to His great body, the church. We have everything prepared for you this morning. The water is ready. There's garments ready. It all just depends upon your choice, your desire. We'd love to see a new brother, a new sister in Christ this morning. This song of encouragement is also for those of us who are Christians who might be struggling with sin in our lives and recognize it's much more powerful than we are. However, it's not more powerful than God. And we can come back to our loving Father and say, I'm sorry, Father, I've sinned and I want to be forgiven. We'll pray with you. We'll pray for you. Would you come while we sing this song?